people say that I've only ever been to Amarillo, Texas, so oh, I yeah. you know very little about well, I'm Austin. Not he says it right too. Like, oh, it's my dad's from Mexico. So. Oh, is that right? Yeah, that's that's why I asked about the name because ah, Sergio is a very ah. Mexican name. <laughs> okay, so uh, you're here at ACs in Chicago to present a paper on the international football of the Soviet Union in the 1950s, right? Yeah. Okay, great. Are you still a PhD candidate at Wisconsin, at Madison? Yeah. Oh, uh, Zon? Even my mother butchers it, so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what, what would you like it to be? Uh, Zon. Zon? Zon. It's the same. So, okay, okay. Yakov Zon. It's not a typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. All right, hello, Slavic Connection listeners. This is your host for today, Sergio Glujar, and I am with Yakov Tson. Hi, Yakov. Hi, Sergio. So, Yakov, before we start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your research, where you study, things like that? Right. So, I'm I'm from Marseille, France, born to a Dutch-German mother, a Mexican father, and but uh, I'm far removed from that now. I I studied my master's in the friendliest university in all of Russia, called People's Friendship University of Russia. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I finished my master's there, and I'm doing my PhD in history, which was a big step. I was in political science. I'm doing it in history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I am studying Soviet national team, as, as I call it, this Bornaya. Right now in the middle of researching and writing, and that's why I'm here with the first part of my what will be of my dissertation. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So uh, as you mentioned, you're writing on uh, the Spornaya, uh, the Soviet Union soccer team, and uh, you're paying particular attention to the mid-1950s, as I understand it. Yeah, eventually I would like to get that farther up. But at the moment, uh, in this conference, it'll be about the two Olympics, the first time the Soviet Union actually participates in a major international competition, which is the 1952 Helsinki Olympics and the 1956 Melbourne, and all of the politics and the wonderful thing side of sport too in this presentation. Wonderful. So yeah, can you uh, tell us a little bit about that, sort of the, the historical context, geopolitical right. context, whatever seems relevant? Well, where to start? First off, what I find very exciting about well, what I do is, uh, one is that I love soccer. I used to play, uh, I still play, and I was uh, in Russia, I was known as Snowden. That was my nickname <laughs> <laughs> when I was playing there in the lower divisions. Uh, more, uh, that is a story for another day. But what happens here is that uh, this Bornaya uh, like, is very slow to develop. There is games in the 30s, then in the 1950s you have your first attempts of the Soviet Union, not just in soccer, but in other sports to participate in the greater sports movements, not just the uh, worker sports, but in the Olympics. And the Olympics is always seen as the crown jewel and the, the benchmark for Soviet athletes, and that really starts in 52. And I I'm looking at how the preparations for these Olympic Games, as, as far as the soccer side, were incredibly chaotic. Involved the Central Committee of the Communist Party, all, all the way at the top you have the head of the secret police, uh, Beria, who is very interested, shall I say, and very, uh, I would say, likes to punish uh, his opponents. And then you also have the Sports Committee, who are, have their own agenda, and they're also trying to prepare this team with the goal of winning the first Olympics, which proves impossible and ends in tragedy. And that's the first part. And the second part, the 1956 Melbourne Olympics, and there the Soviet Union does win a gold medal, and it's uh, one of the, the first and greatest achievements of the Maya. 
Wonderful. Um, I, I'd be super curious to hear more about Beria's role and involvement in this. <laughs> yeah, well, Beria is he's more well known for his role in the club football. It's uh, he the the way that football works in the Soviet Union is that institutions, so say enterprises, mm-hmm. say enterprises, uh, they control sports societies, and these sports societies have soccer sides. And Beria is very involved with uh, Dynamo Moscow and Dynamo Tbilisi. He is Georgian, after all. Mm-hmm. And they, over the years, as, as long as he's alive, get, shall we say, some assistance. In <laughs> certain games, um, he does send some of the Starostin brothers, who are these legendary figures from the Spartak Moscow, a rival organization. He sends them to the Gulag at one point, it is alleged, by uh, Dr. Edelman. And it seems the documents point in that direction. And he also manages to, to replay a semifinal after a final involving Dynamo Tbilisi, and I believe in 1939, which is one off occurrence of you never see a semifinal played after a final. Of course not, right? So, there you go. <laughs> wow, remarkable. Last person I would, well, actually, maybe I should have expected him to show up in the story. But uh, let's talk a little bit about, you write that the Committee for Physical Culture put this sort of uh, unreasonable expectation of achievement, this debilitating pressure on the Spornaya, on the USSR national team. What are the dynamics of that? So the, the biggest problem is that these people have, uh, these organizations show us, one is that they're very isolated. They've, they haven't seen what really the other side of the world is, not just in soccer and other matters. There's not a lot of travel uh, at this point uh, in Soviet history. And as far as soccer goes, the team is said that they have to win. They are given this schedule, very demanding. They play in the regular season. So they play against club teams in the Soviet Union, not just international games. And what these unrealistic expectations create is this pressure that you have to win every game, even no matter who it is, no matter what it is, uh, because we are the best. And of course, Stalin and the Soviet Union won the war. We have to continue that on the sporting field. This proves impossible. And one way that they, what's very interesting is that in the end, the Soviet uh, Sporting, especially in, for the 52, never plays under its own, as in, shall we say, the national team. It's always uh, either being called the Moscow Sporting or, so or Moscow Select is the way I like to call it. Mm-hmm. And then at one point, and this is a very rare case that after four games, they play the rest of their preparatory games for the Olympics. They play them as Sidika, which is the army team. And what's evidence as far as the documents that I've read points to is that this is a, a preliminary tactic to find a scapegoat just in case the Olympics don't go to plan. Because in the first four games, so there's, I believe, nine preparatory games. In the first four games, the sport and I am plays poorly by their standards. But in reality, it's not so bad. But... The politicians think otherwise, and the sporting authorities too. So they change the name to the Ka, who were the best team of the Soviet Union at the moment, despite the Spornaya never calling more than five players from that team to play in the Olympics. And this is very bizarre, considering that despite being the best team in the Union, they were actually in the, shall we say, uh, the bad books of the sporting authorities, of the political authorities, because of a poor performance in 1947, and they had been banned from practically banned from playing international games. So all of a sudden, in 52, they're reinstated, which seems quite suspicious. And one of the leading players in this team, I believe it's Valentin Nikolaev, goes on and says, and claims this also as he being the insider, says that this was their attempt at covering the tracks. Because in reality, even the training plan for the Borne has the signatures of the people from the Central Committee. They signed off the plan. They had to approve everything. They had to even approve sending, for example, radio commentators to go and commentate on games. No one could go outside of the Soviet Union without the higher political authorities signing off. 
And so what have you discovered in your research here about this uh, connection between sports and politics in the Soviet Union, at least during the time in question? Here what we see is that politics are, are more important than sporting matters, which I guess for bureaucrats is expected. But it really, the political needs subjugate the sporting needs. And what we, after the, this whole Olympics, where they lose against the Yugoslavians in one of the, in the, in uh, their second game, the team gets, the Tzidika gets disbanded, liquidated, I should say. There's order 793. They cease to exist. The national team doesn't play for two more years. They get invited to a World Cup in 54. They don't participate, partly because the Central Committee wanted a top three place finish, which uh, no one was going to guarantee them, especially after they'd lost against amateur Yugoslavia. Uh -huh. Amateur, shall we say, name. And the best Western European teams at the World Cup or the South Americans were going to destroy the Soviet Union. At least that's what the sports committee probably thought, and that's why they never took that route. And then you see also that the Soviet Union prepares for the next Olympics by playing very weak teams. But it's all part of Khrushchev's third world policy where he's trying to connect, uh, get closer to developing countries. And so instead of playing very good soccer teams, they try to play the national teams or club teams of these, like for India, for example, who did not even play with cleats. They played in socks, practically, with little holes for little toes to go in. Wow. So this was, it looked great for the statistics. And again, we talk about the prestigious, really. The Soviet Union could boast that they scored 100 goals in a 16-game tour of India and only led in four. But right. again, again, what, what, is, what kind of preparation is this when you really should be playing the best of the best all the time? So... So you've, you've alluded to this already, but I'd be curious to hear more about how the dynamics around the Sbornaya or, you know, Soviet men's soccer in general transformed with the shift from Stalin to Khrushchev. Yeah, so it's uh, a great question. And that's what I'm trying to answer with this. I find that it's a really interesting shift because you have one of the darkest moments with Stalin and Stalin, and you have a lot of the Stalinist characteristics of his reign that you have kind of like a five-year plan going on that they have this expectation. You have no time to complete it, but at least the numbers have to look good. It's all about the medals. Whatever else, how you play, not important, just the medals. And they fail. And so what does happen in the five-year plan? They also they look for the conspiracy. They look for the people who are collaborators and they punish them. And in this case, they punish the Tzidika team and not just that. They punish the coach who is um, Boris Arkadiev. He loses his job. For poor performances or... For, yeah, because they didn't win. Um, he gets an ear, earful mm -hmm. from the higher-ups. And so does one of the other players, Beskov, who becomes a very good coach later. And then with Khrushchev, you see that this pressure that, that instead of the team returning from defeat and thinking they'd be sent to the gulags, which is what I've read in some of the accounts, with Khrushchev, the new coach, uh, Gabriel Kashalin, he says, well, we weren't scared at all. We, weren't, we didn't think without Beria and Stalin, he says in an interview, we didn't think that this would, we'd have the same problem, that we'd be, be punished for mm -hmm. losing. And so they improve may, in some ways because of this, not just because of that, of course. They play more games. There is still that desire to protect the prestige of the Soviet Union and, to, and all this. But with Khrushchev, you see that, yes, they do play really weak teams for political purposes, but the thaw is there, that there's not, they're not so... When they play Yugoslavia in the final of the 56 game, there's not this, this, this need to win. There's no telegram from Stalin, which happened in the 52. There's no telegram saying that you must win or else. So, 
And how was it then around the 1956 Melbourne Games by comparison? It was a walk in the park in many regards, but the Soviet Union did have the embarrassment of not, though they did win, they played in very weak opposition. They, they claim in commemorative handbooks that I've read that they played the best teams in the world. This is completely false. There's only 11 teams competing instead of 16 because a bunch of other teams refused to play for various political reasons or just because they knew they weren't going to get a medal. And they said, well, you don't want to spend all the money sending them to Australia. It's far away. And they end up, uh, the Soviet Union beats a United German team. They're all amateurs, so it's not a very great feat. And then they have the embarrassment of tying the Indonesians, who are considered to be not very good in this sport. They do beat them in a replay. And they beat the Bulgarians and beat the Yugoslavians, who are a much weaker team than four years previously, because many of their players from the previous World Cup in 54 in the Olympics were not allowed to play. And so it's only the one of two gold medals, or I should say gold medals, that the Soviet Union ever gets in the sport. Okay, so I'd be curious to hear also about the events surrounding Soviet football in the 50s. How did they or did they at all affect Soviet sport writ large? I mean, was football one of the priorities for the regime or uh, how did it play into right. other, aspira- other sports aspirations, I should say? From what I've read, and it seems that no, football is not the priority. Football is more of like an annoying a little crying baby, shall we say. Okay, okay. That. It's that you can't, everyone loves it. It's the most popular sport in all of the Soviet Union, and it just causes headaches for all the uh, sports committee, the sports and the uh, central committee, uh, that they cannot win. Because instead of with the Olympic sports, which is given priority and given more funding, they have to deal with a sport that it's one, it's very hard to win because there's professionals. There's not just amateurs. And they have shall we say, facilities are bad, the weather's terrible, the season runs also, shall we say, spring to just fall, and it's very off-kelter with the other, other soccer leagues. And then for Soviet sports, it was much cheaper to, say, to invest in individual sports. What about if you invest in a weightlifter or someone who swims, right, a swimmer? They would get many medals. Instead of investing tons of money on a huge team that can't even win one medal consistently, and in the end, as I say, the Soviet Union loves statistics. And so the Olympic medal count was the most important thing. And the Soviet soccer cannot provide that assurance, which is why it was not prioritized in many ways, despite it being, shall we say, very well off as far as Soviet sports goes too. They, they hadn't funds. It just wasn't as strongly backed. Well, interesting. So essentially you get you can get more medals for your money yeah. doing uh, supporting individual sports. Yeah, you have to realize the Soviet economy was not as powerful as capitalist economies. They could provide, shall we say, big industrial or projects and all that, but like consumer goods, all this, they were very bad at, shall we say, they're much poorer in general in, in many terms. And soccer is a sport that investment has often come from like more of a smaller or certainly individual level, not from governments. Even just like that, with professionalism, because the Soviet Union was against professionalism, that also hinders um, the sport. Fantastic. We've talked about we've talked about Soviet soccer being used by the authorities essentially as a way to garner international prestige. Mm-hmm. Would you say, from your research, that that worked? I would say uh, international prestige 
I, I would believe more it's they're trying to impress their own audiences. Okay, so uh, sort of internal facing. Yes, because abroad it was hard for the Soviet Union to con- say to convince any audience that they were a successful international team. Yes, they did fairly well, but the Olympics, which is what I study, the Olympics are not as highly regarded, right? And that's why the Soviet Union actually competes in those because they know they have a chance. If they're done better at the World Cups, uh, they play the first one in 58. If they're done better there, then they would, yes, they would say, wow, the, the procedure would be greatly enhanced. There were a couple moments where they were, they beat the, the West Germans who were the world champions in 55, I want to say, or 3-2. It's called the match of the century. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, very important because this was part of the bigger negotiations, again, we talk about politics, of bringing prisoners of war from World War II from Russia back to Germany. And so there's all these high, the highest level of politicians were involved in getting this game as part of that whole process. And there was all these tourists who come and yeah, with that, the tourists coming there impressed by what they see in the Soviet Union, it was all very well planned and so forth. But no, they most of the prestige of what they're trying to defend, it looks like they're trying to defend it at the home audience. That, well, look, we're amazing. And they write that in all their commemorative books and in all the journalist articles. They always say well, uh, they will criticize the teams from time to time, but they also give tons of undeserved praise, in mm-hmm, my opinion, mm-hmm. for these achievements that are good, but not great. Very nice. Very nice. All right. And then I guess uh, maybe to close off here, I would be curious, how did the treatment of, of Soviet soccer by the authorities in the 50s affect the future development of the sport in the Soviet Union and then maybe even in, in the Russian Federation after, uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union? I mean, uh, can we trace any sort of long-term effects, consequences from Soviet soccer in the 50s to so- the subsequent decades? Yeah, but like, oh, there's many ways to go. For, Whatever seems most interesting. Well, it's, to you. it's a, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's an important beginning point. It has this false dawn with '52, and then the '56 is actually marks a, a golden era for Soviet soccer. It sets the players that appear in this Olympic cycle would play for some of them for decade, another oh, decade wow. or two. Mm-hmm. There was a uh, Lev Yashin who is, is still considered the best goalkeeper that ever graced the planet, and he's that's saying something. Absolutely, uh, he is a goalkeeper who plays in an unfancy, shall we say, national team or for a club team. And he's the only goalkeeper to win the player, the European footballer of the year award, and I believe in 63. <laughs> and so he, him, and uh, then the captain, Igor Neto, among others, they win a, a European championship in 1960. That's a great achievement. Absolutely. They go on and they, they make another, they make a World Cup semifinal in 66. They do well at the 64 European Championships too. I believe it's either a final or a semi-final again, and in 72 too. But this is a very, shall we say, it's, it's very interesting that here that it's all Moscow, 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 what I'm talking about. And this changes in the 60s already, where you have the first time a non-Moscow team wins. Is this because of what happened in the 50s or not? I haven't gone that far yet in my research. What team was that? So uh, in 61, Dynamo Kiev wins. Uh-huh. Dynamo Kiev would end up being depending on what your metrics are, the most successful Soviet team before the collapse of the mm-hmm. Soviet Union. And the national team would see that very interesting change where it's a Moscow-dependent team. 34 of the 40 players that I say of the two finals, I'm talking about 52 and 56, are from mm-hmm. Moscow. By the 70s, Dynamo Kiev, the Ukrainian team, doubles as the Soviet national team. So they would go and compete, uh, not very successfully. Um, but then in the 80s, they do have a, a late renaissance where they make another European championship final. And this is a very interesting shift from like, you see the, the central, the capital, the, the political center of the Soviet Union, and that loses its influence 
with the 60s and really in the 70s already. Moscow teams do win once in a while, but their Nash, their players will not dominate the same way. You'll see more Georgians coming in too, and especially Ukrainians. The Ukrainians become uh, the, the pace setters uh, and the innovators, um, not just in the Soviet Union, but even, for example, uh, Valery Lovanovsky. Uh, work he will his tactics and uh, ideas will influence the next generation of uh, European experts, South American coaches, and so he's really it's a very special period. But also as far as this national team, the fifties and the early sixties were in the sorry I should say the mid sixties were the end of the good times, and, this, and there was a big barren spell up until the, right at the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so, yeah, it's very, it's full of paradoxes, which yeah. is why it's so interesting. Truly, truly, truly. I, I, I'm just curious, do you have any idea how the, uh, you know, Moscow-based authorities, you know, Committee for Physical Culture, the Council of Ministers, do you get any impression of how they reacted to uh, Moscow ceasing to be sort of the center of Soviet footballing? So uh, since I'm right now getting to 57 of my research, I will finish in 66 or 68. I can tell you from what I've seen, I would doubt they're very happy with the, in the 60s when this happens because there is at least one or two cases where the authorities, when Moscow is about, to, well, Moscow clubs are about to lose their grip on the championship in 53 to a Georgian team, they go and force a replay. It's Dynamo Tbilisi against uh, its Torpedo. They force a replay and, and they force the team, and the Tbilisi players knew that they they weren't going to win and they just drank themselves silly before the replay. And <laughs> it, was, it was in within 48 hours. And yeah. they, they went and lost. And that was, uh, that just showed you that these, these guys, they, they won in their reports, uh, their, in the documents of their meetings. They talk about the national team was like, oh, we have to build it on this Moscow club. Uh, first was Sidika, was, and then Spartak was the 1956 one and so on. They always built it on one club thinking that, oh, this one club will be united. And then they have a couple players outside of the club play, but never the regions. So it was always Moscow. I don't think in the 60s, no, they, I doubt they gave it up without a fight. So I'd be very interested to find out how or why this happened or how it could have happened. So that's for another day. Turning to today for a final, final question. Champions League round of 16 draw recently came out. Any uh, any takes? Any uh, Anything stand out to you there? We got a, a last year's final replay, Liverpool-Madrid. Yeah, so in today's day and age, it's all of these teams are quite good. Of course, you always have to go wherever the, the golf states invest. Usually, yes. where you'll find the best teams. And right now, PSG. So PSG, right? PSG has a great chance. And always, there's always the, the Spanish Real Madrid team. Uh, they're always very good. And the English always do well just because they also have pretty, well, especially Manchester City have bottomless pockets. So yeah, that's my that's my take. So PSG Bayern, who comes out on top? Yeah, it has to be. I would say PSG, but there's no. Um, as a fan, I would say, well, you don't have Lewandowski, whatever. Right, 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 right. We'll see what happens. That's why soccer is such a beautiful game. Is that despite many dictators over the years trying to control whatever outcome, even in Romania, for sure, example, of course, it's proven hard. In reality, soccer controls their heart and doesn't let it be controlled by them more often than not. Which is always, uh, it's always nice to think that it's a sport that you never know what's going to happen, no matter what. That's why even the champions, (laughs) we'll see. (laughs) So, excellent. Thank you so much for joining us, Yaakov. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Pleasure. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world.
Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 